the lesson today is going to be very condensed and very brief. Uh, right after we're done, we have a special announcement. Uh, going to come up and uh, some folks and give a, uh, an update from the discernment committee. And so the lesson will be very, very brief this morning. Now, two things I've just noticed that have not gone without my, my uh, notice. First, when I said the lesson is going to be brief, you're supposed to groan and protest a little bit. I noticed there was silence. But also, I know this crowd, and I appreciate you not breaking out into applause. So you just got to look at the positive. So thank you very much. The lesson this morning is about one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. And the title is The Man Who Came Back. And we'll talk about who that was. Don't try to figure it out. We'll talk about who that was in just a moment. But to set the stage, I'm one of these guys that carries around a little notebook with me. I keep it in my truck. I have it with me always. Because occasionally I'll come across and pick up little sayings, quotes from people that resonate, that speak to me. I'll see them on posters from lessons I hear or podcasts. Occasionally there'll be a really clever bumper sticker. And I go, oh, i got to write that one down. And the theme goes something like this. It's not how many times you get knocked down that counts. It's how many times you get back up. And those quotes, those saying, those Vince Lombardi stuff about uh, perseverance and stick to they just inspire me. Quotes like these, and I brought a few. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it. Or, kites rise highest against the wind, not with it. Or I love what Thomas Edison said about the light bulb we've all heard. I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Or even Confucius, it does not matter how slowly you go as long as you do not stop. The lesson today is about one of my favorite characters in the New Testament, named John Mark. He has one of those stories that I doubt you've ever heard about, or certainly probably never heard a lesson about him. And I'm not saying I'm like him, but on some level I do relate to his story. I can certainly see myself in his deficiencies. I can see myself in his vulnerability. I aspire to see myself in his strength. To better understand this fascinating character, I've divided the lesson into two parts. First, I want to talk about five facts about him, and then we're going to look at the three steps of his story that inspired me to call him the man that came back. First, let's look at five facts about him. First of all, his name. He is called multiple things in Scripture. He's called John. He's called John Mark. He's called Marcus. You know, for us in the 20th century, when we name our children, quite often we name them after things like uh, a rich uncle or maybe a movie character, or a celebrity. 
Every time there's a Disney movie that comes out, there'll be a bunch of girls named names like Jasmine. Or after the movie E.T. came out, there are a bunch of Elliots. And every time there's a sequel released of Star Wars, we got a rash of Lukes that pop up. But you know, in the first century, names had more importance than they do today. Even God placed a lot of meaning on names, changing the names of Abram, Sarai, Jacob, and later Saul. The name John Mark had a meaning as well. His name meant the big hammer. That's quite a name to live up to. See, people expected you to live up to your name. If you were named a, a woman named Beautiful, you were expected to be. And the same thing holds true today. If there's a football team and they have a player nicknamed Tank, what would you expect? And the same thing, we would expect dynamic leadership from John Mark, the big hammer. Secondly, we know about John Mark is he had some wonderful relatives. Particularly, he had an illustrious older cousin, almost like an uncle. We read about him in Colossians 4.10. My fellow prisoner sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. That's a pretty good cousin. He was obviously older. Uh, the King James Version interprets Barnabas as his uncle. But Barnabas was a leader in the church. His name meant son of encouragement. One of the very first missionaries that went on the missionary journey with Paul. No doubtedly, Barnabas had a huge impact on John Mark. John Mark also had a devoted mother. We read about her in Acts 12. Peter was in prison. Uh, arrested by Herod, fixing to be put to death more than likely. James had just been killed, and he was in shackles between guards, locked in this prison, waiting on trial, no doubt anticipating the worst. The saints were all gathered, gathered together praying for him, praying for a miracle. And an angel comes, and the shackles fall off Peter's wrists. He gets up walks out the door that miraculously just swings open and the ground the guards don't make a move he walks about a block and the angel disappears and he realizes you know maybe i ought to get out of the middle of the street and he comes to himself acts 12 12 when this had dawned on him peter he went to the house of mary the mother of john also called mark where many people had gathered and were praying for his release. Peter knew where the saints would be gathering. She was a woman that would open up her home. I think it's important to mention here that notice it's called the house of Mary. Many scholars believe that probably John Mark's father had died because it was common for property to be named after and to be put in the name of the, of the man, the husband, if he was alive. The third fact we know about John Mark is that Peter loved him. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter calls him my son Mark. 
They must have had an incredibly close relationship. It seemed to be like he was Peter's apprentice, a relationship similar to Paul would have had to Timothy. I mean, this young man, he associated with some of the greatest preachers ever. What an experience to know Peter intimately, to hear him talk about Christ. He was with him for years and regale him with stories of of what Christ did, to hear him talk about his denial. This guy got to live the events that we only got to read about. And that was his mentor. The fourth thing we know about John Mark is he wrote the first gospel. All the historians agree on this part, on this point. Mark was written first. And it's a wonderful book to begin with. One particular common, uh, commentator I really like said about the book of Mark, he writes like a sports writer telling the story of a winning team. Go down a few points, victory is assured at the end. To write one of the books of the Bible, what an incredible, awesome privilege. The fifth thing we know about John Mark is we first meet him at a prayer meeting. In Acts 12, 12, he was a devout man and the saints were gathered. He was going to be there. So this is a young man who had very impressive credentials as far as church connections go. He worked with a man that was one of the greatest preachers ever. His uncle, his cousin, was this profound leader in the church. He lived his life in such a way that he was said of him, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to actually hear Peter preach. This was Mark's privilege. Certainly ahead of the crowd. So now that we've learned these five facts about him, now let's look at the three steps in his his life that made me want to call him the man that came back. Why is he one of my favorites? Well, the first step is he was with God. Now again, remember, this young man had an impressive, impressive beginning. He worked with two of the greatest churches, Jerusalem and then Antioch, really probably two of the greatest churches ever. In Acts 13, verse 1, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. They had Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manion, and Saul. Some churches have two or three preachers. This one had five. What a marvelous opportunity to work with these two churches that took the lead in catapulting Christianity, planting the seed for Christ literally around the world. Jerusalem, it was believed at this point, had 15,000 members. Antioch was thought to have 5,000. These are big churches. So he had the advantages of the very best teaching the very best programming, the best quality preaching you could imagine. A decisive edge for a young man who's being groomed to take a leadership role. What happened next? 
Well, the Holy Spirit instructed Barnabas and Saul to go on a preaching missionary journey. Acts 13, 2. While they were there worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart to me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them. Not only these two were called to the mission field, yet Mark was taken with them. Acts 13, 5. John was with them as their helper. Now the Holy Spirit did not include John Mark, but they took him along to share this great opportunity. We're going to be doing this wonderful thing. Let's bring the young guy with us. Show him the ropes, break him in, groom him. Notice he was going along with them to serve them in a ministry role. Ministry is more than just preaching. Now, preaching is important. Preaching is good. And we certainly need young men, women to take up that vocation. But you know, we also need elders and deacons and singers and givers. I love the story of men like A.P. Burton who wanted to preach so badly. He wanted that to be his job, but he was just really bad at it. He was not good. He did not have that giftedness, but he was a shrewd, wonderful businessman. He made lots of money. And he individually supported a lot of churches, numerous Christian colleges. He personally sponsored multiple missionaries all by himself. No, he couldn't preach. But he was a minister. He served. The second step about John Mark is this. He goes home. And if you're superstitious, you might be kind of curious about, what does it say in Acts 13, 13? What could that be? It's a pretty simple verse, but it says that John left them to return to Jerusalem. Well, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with going home, and I'm out of town, away from Joe. There's nothing quite as pleasant as that drive home. Home to where your loved ones are. And if you read verse 13 alone, you'd think, well, what's wrong with that? Now, we're never told why John Mark leaves and goes home, but whatever the reason was, we find out that Paul did not think it was a very good reason. We read about that in Acts 15, verses 36 through 40. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. Barnabas, again, wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Over the years, many have speculated why John Mark might have turned back. Maybe he was afraid of persecution 
Or maybe when they set out, he got homesick. He was, after all, a young man, first time away from home. Maybe he was unwilling to have all the hardships that come with being on a missionary journey like that. Maybe he had an issue with ministering to Gentiles. We don't need to take this great news to those Gentile dogs. We don't know why he turned back. But for whatever the reason, he departed. In Paul's mind, he deserted. He quit. In Luke 6, excuse me, Luke 9, 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The big hammer wasn't swinging much of a blow. But tomorrow when the account comes due, he'll have a second chance. See, Paul wanted to go revisit the churches from the earlier journey. In verse 36, he explains they had done a good work and he wanted to go back and check on them. The two differ strongly. He's going with us. No, he isn't. He tis, he tant. And then the first starts flying. The two differ strongly, so strongly, it's called a huge difference. Turns out blood is thicker than water. Barnabas, son of encouragement, is going to stick with him, no matter what. But you know, rather than keep bickering back and forth, they came up with a solution. We'll just part company. And as a result, there were four missionaries on the mission field instead of two. There were two teams instead of one. You know, God can use even our deficiencies, even our disagreements, and he can use it for good. The third step to this young man's journey is this. He comes back. Barnabas, at this point in Scripture, he drops off the scene. We don't hear anything more about him, which is sad. We do, fortunately, hear a great deal more from Paul. And over the years in Paul's writings, we see a gradual change in his attitude towards Mark the quitter. Ten years passed. And in Colossians 4, verse 10, Paul writes about Mark. He said, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, you have, re you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Notice if he comes to you, welcome him. Paul felt, you know, he might turn back again like he had done before. He'll forgive. Paul wouldn't forget. Have you ever known people like that? You know, you make a mistake. Admittedly, you dropped the ball, and they are never going to let you forget it. They never get over it. You are forever branded in their mind as a screw-up because you blew it on that thing. They have the attitude, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. They don't seem capable of forgiving and forgetting. Have you ever known people like that? Well, that's me. Or at least it was. 
if someone messed up, it remained in the back of my mind. It's, it stayed there. I was not nearly as forgiving as I am now that I'm somewhat older. What's the difference? I have needed grace and forgiveness after falling flat on my face so many times I can't count. Your perspective changes on topics like how often you should forgive depending on what side of the fence you're on. It's easy to advocate for sternness and mete out strict judgment until it's you asking for mercy. Until it's one of your kids that needs forgiveness. That seems to have been Paul's attitude here. Twenty more years passed. By this time, Paul's in the twilight of his life. Several had departed him. Demas, many were against him. He feels that, you know, I'm not going to escape the lion's mouth this time. And he writes this letter to Timothy and tells him he needs some things, some practical things. I need my coat. I need some books. But he needs something else he knows he can count on. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, decades later, he knows he can count on Mark. He knows he'll come. He was saying, I need the big hammer. The bird with the broken wing had now mended. And he was soaring higher than ever before. Now, Paul, he knew who he could depend on. This is the story. His story is one of redemption. The story of second chances. The story of a Savior who says, yes, you can come home. That's the story we read about in the prodigal son. And there's one thing about that story that has always bothered me as we interpreted it. You know the story, the prodigal son leaves his father, leaves home, abandons his family, goes to a far country and lives a life of debauchery. And he comes to his senses and realizes, I can and should Go back home. He gets up out of the pig pen and starts walking home. And before he reaches it, his father sees him coming, who has been watching, waiting, praying that he would come home. It's a beautiful story, a beautiful parable, but it's not meant to be translated the way we translate it because if this was a parable about a spiritual journey, it would be quite different. The prodigal son would come to his senses in the far country and realizes, oh my word, life was so much better when I was with my father. And he would realize, I've got to get up and I would and should go back home. So he gets up and turns to go back to the father and takes a step and the father's right there. He bumps into him. He was only a step away. He always had been. 
no matter how much you have gotten off course, no matter how far you think you have drifted away from the Lord, you and I are the same distance away from God and his forgiveness. One step. One step from the warm, loving embrace of the Father who says, yes, welcome home. You're always welcome here. Come to Daddy. May God help us all, no matter how far we might have drifted, to remember and remain confident in you're one step away from the Father. It's his story. It's our story. The man who came back. If I could, I'm going to stop here and ask uh, Nancy, Kim, Keith, if they would, to come up for a special update from the discernment committee. Today is my pleasure to give you an update of where we are with the discernment team. But before I give you the update, I first and foremost want to thank all of you, each of you, for your prayers and the fasting that has covered this discernment process from the very beginning. Your prayers helped make the path straight, as the proverb says. And please don't put this discipline aside. Just continue to pray and fast over this precious church and this process. As I look over the last 14 months of work by the discernment team, I have come to understand that we were called to hold the waiting space. Hold the waiting space for a church that is strategically located, has been given a great purpose for the kingdom's sake, and I believe that purpose will not be thwarted. I praise God for the incredibly humble, gifted, diligent, respectful team of 15 that God called to serve as the discernment team. Their faithfulness has been inspiring. Every Monday night they gathered to pray and discern. There was never a thought that someone was putting this commitment second place. Always honor and respect filled that room, and a desire to stay obedient to what God was asking us to do was always the motivation. Our first task was the four assessments. The congregation assessment team showed us where we were as a body. They sat faithfully with the congregation questions and evaluated each one before sending them out to you. And then they spent hours putting together the report and video for the shepherds and our church so we could have a view of who we are and where we wanted to go, where we desired God wanted to lead us. The history assessment team assessed and presented great affirmation of God's hand on this church for over 180 years. 
to look at the way God continues to redeem our mistakes and turn them for good is a faith builder for all of us. Everyone was encouraged by the way they crafted that assessment and presented it to our shepherds and our church. The kingdom assessment team went to the feet of other leaders in the kingdom and humbly asked what they were doing to push back the darkness and let the light shine in. They captured their words and their works for us to grow from. Again, the team leader edited and presented to the church what they witnessed and where God's fingerprints were most evident. The community assessment team sought out the community and looked for his goodness. Where were there places that were well served and where were there places Fourth Avenue could join in and help cover by adding more light and salt? The leader of that team not only asked the questions, prepared the video and report, but also added and took on the next step by chairing a community outreach program that is already fruitful. Then the interview process began. We quickly found that a statement of faith, mission, and vision were critical in this process, and the shepherds spent many meetings getting that in place as we continued to contact recommenders and candidates. Every recommender's suggested candidate was vetted, and some we entered into the interview process. The hosts and triads who led this part of the process included every team member spending hours discerning candidate names and making contacts, listening to hours and hours of sermons and reading the candidates' works. The spouses of the hosts were also included in this process. They deserve a huge praise for willingly jumping on board in the middle of this process. Another group of unsung heroes in this process are the spouses and friends who took care of things at home while the other was in meetings, on the computer listening to interviews and sermons, out interviewing for the assessments, compiling reports, and meeting with the videographer. They served all of us well, and we thank them. I believe the turning point of our process was in the middle of November when we called a 30-day time to pray and gather with the shepherds and the staff for communion and to listen and share what God was showing and saying to us. The praise songs and powerful communion thoughts bonded all of us differently. One of the stories that came up out of our 30 days of prayer was from one of our shepherds. He said he was up taking care of his mom in Arkansas and would go out early in the morning and take a walk in the beauty of the Arkansas terrain. He said there was a fog every morning and he could not see but a very limited distance ahead of his feet. He said there was nothing to be done but wait for the fog to lift. Then someone in our prayer breakout group said, yes, we always want to turn the lights on bright and that is the worst thing to do. Instead, we just have to wait for the fog to lift. At the end of that 30 days of prayer, I asked the shepherds to give the team new direction as we were at the end of our list of new candidate names from recommenders. So the shepherds met throughout the month of December and decided it was time to move the process back into the hands of the shepherds and make some changes in the process, building on what had already been completed. 
They will tell you more about how that will look. I believe the discernment team has held the waiting space faithfully, waiting for the fog to lift. And now it is time to hand the process back to the shepherds who have always worn that mantle of discernment and love for this body. My prayer is that this next phase will go quickly for them, but whatever God does, we will continue in prayer for his goodness and grace to abound. Shepherds, thank you for entrusting us with this assignment. Thank you for your encouragement and prayers. We love you and honor you as you carry on with the next phase of holding the waiting space. May the fog lift quickly so you can fill our pulpit with our new lead minister. I would like two of the discernment team members to speak out as well as myself today. And Alicia Bell was one that I wanted to come and speak out. And she's sick today. So we need to pray for Alicia. But I've asked Ken Knopp to speak out. And he's going to read Alicia's words. So here's Ken. Good morning. Fortunately, uh, Alicia was very thoughtful had she had her words all organized ahead of time and Nancy printed them out in a font that was large enough for me to read so <clears throat> these are Alicia's words and thoughts and I certainly agree with what she says Ken and I are only two members of a diverse team of 15 people who came together with experiences different experiences opinions perspectives and callings for 14 months we took personal ownership over helping this church find our next minister. We clung tightly to our responsibilities as we vetted dozens of candidates. We worked very hard to represent your voices and needs. Each of us clinging not only to what you told us in the surveys and in conversations, but we cling to what the Lord was showing us as we discern candidates together. Our meetings were amazing. We looked at each candidate from 15 different perspectives, but there was always unity. Uh, let's see, unity, clarity, and trust in our decisions to move forward with a candidate or stop. That unity was from the Lord. I fully believe God used this group to vet those specific candidates for a reason. In this change of process, God is providing unity again. He has loosened the grasp of the discernment team on this process like only he can. To be honest, it is hard to let go because we each took it so seriously. We weren't just representing you we are you, members of this congregation. But we feel God moving in this change too. It is a time for the process to change and for our leaders to carry this yoke without this committee. I fully believe the Lord is in this change too. The intent for Ken and me to say a few words is honestly just to show the congregation that there is no animosity between the committee and the shepherds. Amen to that. We pray them into this new season 
and we will continue to pray for you, our church. I pray that each of you feel God's spirit of unity during this change as well, and join us in praying for our shepherds. And that's from Alicia. Alicia, we miss you. Hope you get to feeling better soon. Um, I'm not as organized as she is. One of the challenges when they say, well, get up and say something, it's not for me figuring out what to say. It's figuring out when you've said enough and it's time to sit down and be quiet so everybody else can get on with their life. I have a notebook at home that's this thick regarding the discernment committee and the things that we've done. It was instructions, it was notes, it was um, uh, minutes from the meetings talking about ideas and feelings and it was talking about the evolution of the committee. I could talk for two hours, but I'm gonna reserve my comments. Now, if I can just remember what I was gonna say. To the committee, um, you guys were amazing to work with. Um, it was a blessing for me. I, I, I have grown in that process and I thank you. It was, uh, you know, your, your patience with me um, the spirit that you guys have, the love you have for this body and for our community really, really was amazing to me, and that was a blessing. Uh, to the shepherds, Keith, everybody else, all the other shepherds, um, you know, the heart that these people have for our congregation is amazing. Um, I appreciate the work that you do on our behalf. And to the congregation, you know, like I said, we're, we're all in this together. Um, one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about these comments this morning, we frequently talk about ourselves using collective terms. We say the elders love this congregation. Uh, the staff serves this body of people. We talk about the church Fourth Avenue Church in our community. And all those terms are, are fine and they're accurate. But it's really made up of individuals. All those collective terms are made up of individuals, people, each one of us, each one of you, whether you're in this room or whether you're watching at home, if you are young or if you are old or somewhere in between, if you consider yourself to be really, really active in the work of the church or just active sometimes in the work of the church, it doesn't matter. These shepherds love you individually, you. So when we talk about, or if you hear them talk about the congregation or the church, or using one of those collective terms, remember they're talking about you and me as individuals. They love us. They love us. Thank you. Let's thank Nancy and Alicia and Ken, everyone on the sermon team.
This past Monday, the Shepherds uh, met with the discernment team to thank them for their hard work over the past year and to share with them the next steps as we're, uh, uh, we're going to take at our senior minister search. And then on Wednesday, we met with our staff. And then this morning, we want to share with you the plans that we shared with them. Uh, we use the analogy of a 400-meter relay race where the baton is passed from runner to runner to achieve the goal of winning the race. The consistent, dedicated, and inspired work of the discernment team has covered at least the first three legs of that race, and we truly appreciate all the work that they've done. After spending four weeks with the discernment team and staff over in November and December in prayer and fasting, we decided to transition uh, and let the uh, shepherds take the lead in the uh, minister search process. We currently have several men that uh, we have contacted or will be contacting soon. All of these men are, gr are, are great, talented men who walk humbly with God and listen to his calling. All are leaders in God's kingdom with a great love for people and the lost. A few of them have already been vetted by the discernment team and we're contacting them again to see if maybe this time the timing is right and it might be better uh, for them. Others are men that we're contacting for the first time. A smaller committee has been formed within the eldership to make introductions, to gauge interest, and to complete initial interviews. That committee is made up of Mike Webb, Bill Wright, Tony Simmons, and Brant Bell. As we near the final stages with a candidate, Gary Schrader and Nikki Fox will be included to represent the staff. We've already been asked about timing, and I know that's something that everybody wants to know. It's a concern to all of when this process will be wrapped up. That's a natural question, and, uh, and we're, we're glad that you ask it. We all have a desire for this to be uh, over sooner as opposed to later, uh, but we can't say for sure uh, what the timing is. What we do know for sure is uh, we will continue to wait on the Lord and put our faith in him, let him lead and bless this process. And speaking for all the shepherds, I wanna ask you to continue to faithfully pray and to fast for our next senior minister, for his family and for our search process. Pray that God will bring just the right man to Fourth Avenue. Pray for God's wisdom and guidance for your shepherds as the search continues and continue to lift up 4th Avenue and our, our entire congregation in your prayers, that disciples will be made here, that God's kingdom will expand in our community, and that his will continue to be done here, now, and throughout many years to come. God is going to bless us, and we look forward to that day when we have our senior minister in place. <laughs> 